Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of Investors Chronicle, and David Jane, Multi-Asset Fund Manager at Premier Mighton. No one can predict the direction of markets and what the best investment opportunities are, but you can build up an idea of the economic and market environments to help you choose what might be in a better position to do well. Doing this properly, though, requires a lot of research, which you might not have enough time to do. So it could be useful to spend some of the time you do have for research looking at how professional investors, such as fund managers, are positioned, as they spend all of their working time thinking about this. Dave, why can looking at how professional investors are positioned provide clues about the market environment? Hi, Leonora. Um, there's various reasons, really. Uh, if you invest via funds, for example, um, it could uh, at least indirectly affect you know, how you're positioned. So it's good to be aware of that. But even if um, you simply invest directly yourself by stocks on your own, um, it's good to see how the market is more broadly feeling on different assets and how that may affect prices in future. At the same time, as you mentioned, professional investors have more time, more resources, and they're privy to more information than the average private investor. So that means they may have an edge, they may know something that you don't, that it may be good to um, pay attention to. Um, an example is um, some or a lot of professional investors back in 2016, when you saw the open-ended property funds um, suspend trading, they'd already got out of those funds because they saw the problems building up. Um, same with uh, the Woodford Equity Income Fund that ran his trouble last year. When that happened, when that uh, suspended trading and never reopened, many professional investors again had seen the warning signs and had got out. Okay, so um, what are some of the current views and positions of professional investors? So I guess it's good to take a look at the market that's been leading performance in recent years, uh, US equities. There's a sense that professional investors, and here I'm talking about uh, fund managers, so multi-asset teams or chief investment officers, a lot of them uh, seem to be begrudgingly backing the US. 40% are positive on the US market, um, and then another 40% are neutral. Some people would say the US is quite expensive. So it would say 40% in, a, in an expensive <laughs> market? Um. Yeah, like I say, it's, it's probably begrudging support rather than kind of outright optimism. Like you mentioned, the US has been uh, looking fairly expensive for quite some time. And after the really spectacular returns of last year, that has only um, gotten worse. So concerns have been raised in, in various fund manager outlooks about, for example, high price earning ratios. Uh, so that's a difficulty. At the same time, um, you've got other problems. We've, in the last week or two, we've seen more easing of the US-China trade war. But you never know, that could uh, get worse later on in the year. At the same time, you have expectations that you may now uh, see the US dollar weaken. And that could diminish um, returns from uh, US-based companies. Okay, some things to think about, but uh, nothing's risk-free. So if you can tolerate no. these risks, <laughs> what funds could you use to get exposure to the US? So lots of examples, but just one I'll give here is if you want to go for the kind of simple, um, cheap, broad approach, you could go for a tracker that tracks the S&P 500. Um, an example I've picked is the Fidelity Index US fund. So that's giving you exposure to a lot of the kind of market winners, a lot of the tech funds, very growthy names. 
but also, you know, do be aware that you are exposing yourself to the, the risks that I, I highlighted before. Now, David, you're a professional investor and you've run a number of multi-asset funds. And according to the latest fact sheets, they have between about 9 and 30% of their assets in US equities at the moment. So is your exposure to this equity market more or less from what used to be a normal level? And, you know, what, what do you think about US equities? It's very simple to start with a very simple adage that it's a market of stocks not a stock market. And so when we're considering why it is that, that, that the US equity market has been outperforming most other equity markets over the last quite an extended period of time, if you sit back and say, okay, what is the US equity market? Well, ultimately, it's a market that's very heavily exposed to many of the industries that are growing fast in the global economy, technology, electronics, and also to, to, to a high degree, healthcare, and so on and so forth. And it's also very relatively underexposed, perhaps because they offshored it, but a lot of the heavy, old, dirty industries. And therefore, it, you could actually go to to a long degree and explain the outperformance of the US and the that relatively high valuation of the US equity market simply because of the mix of things, the stocks that exist there. Now, we're a directly invested mixed asset portfolio. So, so we're looking as much as at themes and sectors and macro themes going on as anything else. So when we end up with a what's probably to answer your question, a relatively high exposure to the US compared to history, it very much reflects that factor that essentially we're looking for the stocks that are going to be the long-term winners. Now, you touched on the other factor, which is probably driving the outperformance of the US over the medium term, and that is essentially the move from the global economy to being globally integrated, free trade, you know, everything's very internationalistic, to a move away from global trade growing faster than the world economy. You know, we mentioned the trade war, but that's part of a much bigger and ongoing trend, which is essentially competition between nation states. Now, if you're in that world where, you know, the US is actually seeing China as hostile from an economic point of view, ultimately, I want to stand behind the big boy he's going to win this fight, you know. And so at the end of the day, that's another factor that is driving the outperformance of the US market over others. So when people say it looks dear, they haven't looked close enough, in my view. They're, they're looking very superficially and saying it looks more expensive on a simple PE basis. When you look stock by stock by stock, the fact that the index as a whole looks dear primarily reflects a plethora of winners in the States. We want to buy the winners. Okay, so I suppose just to elaborate a bit on that, then, do you think that the winners are fairly priced or how do you... Well, that, that mm. brings me on to mm. another, you know, top high-level view mm. that we have, which is really the last 10 years have been characterised by ultra-low interest rates worldwide, you know, negative interest rates in, in Europe and Japan. The US interest rates are slightly higher, but ultimately they're extremely low. And when we consider equity valuations, we all too often consider equity valuations in the, in the context of equity valuations that we've seen throughout our career. And we're ignoring the fact that pretty much, you know, throughout our careers, we've been seeing bond yields at 5 6 7 8%. At the moment, they're two and a bit. And there's no reasonable expectation that they're going to go back to that five, six, seven percent. So this is a version of the argument they call there is no alternative, but they otherwise called Tina. But but ultimately when we've got bond yields below three, 
equity valuations in the in you know twenty times earnings. That's a five percent earnings yield. That is an attractive valuation for a company that's growing around the rate of nominal GDP, which itself is five. So, so you're you're potentially going to see a further revaluation of equities higher over time. And anchoring on those old valuations we should, used to see presumes that the overall investment market is going back to that old world we used to see. The only thing we do know is the world we live in today is rather different to that. I mean, obviously, you are saying you, you know, it's a very select bunch you're picking and obviously some potential there. So are there any particular types of US companies or any particular US sectors that you favour? Well, we very much like to invest thematically within mm. our within our multi-asset funds. So when we're thinking thematically, clearly themes that are driving growth of the world economy are things like the digital economy that encompasses everything from semiconductors, electronics, right through to the internet and, and the social media companies. All of those industries are growing relatively rapidly and likely to continue. All of them are also relatively heavily exposed in the US index. So that's one key theme that drives our funds. Another key theme that drives our funds is the transformation of the world economy from a fossil fuel based world economy to a renewables based world economy. Again, there are, there is exposure there in the US, but there will also be exposure in in other markets worldwide. But that theme again is well set and well baked into to 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 the future that we'll be looking at. And, and we broadly think, you know, when we're investing money, expose yourselves to the winner themes and don't become obsessed with stocks just because they're in a benchmark because they may not be worth investing in over a long period of time. In fact, individual investors tend to make that mistake much less than, than institutional investors. Institutional mm. investors tend to obsess themselves with, oh, it's big and in the index. Individual investors rarely make that error. And it's one place where individuals have an advantage. They only look for what, you know, if you're going to buy an equity, I want one that's a winner. Mm. What would be one or two examples of, um, you know, uh, holdings um, that you used to play these themes? Well, actually, there was one industry that's become relatively fashionable mm-hmm. that, that is dominated by US companies, which is the payment services industry. Mm. If you want a relatively high quality way of playing the digital economy, of course, every transaction that you do online mm. will involve a digital payments company. Whereas every transaction you do face to face can still involve cash. Online, digital payments is the only way of making a payment. And you, what you're faced with in that industry is an industry that's essentially an oligopoly. And every time you make one of those payments, be it to a web, web company or Amazon or whatever, several companies are taking a very small clip out of a relatively large payment. And actually that creates a toll gate type situation. Toll gates are the optimal investment. You have to pass through the toll gate. You have to pay the pay the fee. So every time you make a hundred pound payment to Amazon, there's quite a few companies taking a few pence out of it. Which ones do you hold? So MasterCard, Visa are, are the two obvious big winners in that space. And and they they will for the foreseeable future have a tendency to grow at or above the rate of nominal GDP on, on valuations in the low 30s, that structurally is a pretty high return going forward and they can be revalued higher as a time. There's also companies like PayPal and so on and so forth in the space. But there, it is a relatively oligopolistic industry with lovely financial metrics, fixed cost, growing revenue. Okay. Now, um, what areas of the US market are you avoiding? Well, we don't have much exposure to what you might call 
old economy type industries. I mean, one of the um, obviously the biggest loser industry that you could you can face today, and it's very well known, but but arguably still not fully priced into share prices, is the traditional high street bricks and mortar retail industry. Clearly, you know you're you're faced with really bad economics in that industry. You've got fixed costs. You know, you're, you're paying your rent, you own your assets, you've got fixed um, and stock and, and salary and so on and so forth costs, fixed costs and arguably declining revenues. And, and therefore, the potential for companies to get into financial difficulty in that industry remains. And it's, you know, so you've got the headwind of more and more consumers moving more and more of their consumption away from goods and away from the high street because, of course, a higher proportion of consumption is taking place in intangible goods that aren't bought on the high street anyway, gaming and social media and so on and so forth. And notwithstanding that, even when we're buying physical goods, we're buying it ever more from Amazon and other websites. So you've got declining revenue base, fixed costs. The economics get very nasty very quickly when it goes wrong. Okay. And are there any other risks to uh, US equities, perhaps more broadly, that um, you're concerned about? Well, they're all in the headlines, aren't they? I mean, the impact of quantitative easing, are rates going up? Is the economy slowing? Is it is it growing? So on and so forth, you know, all the political issues and so on and so forth. In many ways, I think, you know, as investors, unless you believe you genuinely have a competitive advantage in predicting these things, it's much better to just neutralise it. We can't really know the future with any great clarity. What we can know is the present. And we can invest on that basis. So those headlines, generally, we take the view that either they will come and go. You know, what was it, only 10 days ago, we were all expecting World War Three, And clearly, you know, we were mistaken. And now you don't even see it in the press anymore. So we would much rather, as investors, work our way through these things and think they will come and they will go. And where... You know, there are, there are more important issues like is, is the economy accelerating or re-accelerating? Broadly, unless you think you have an edge in it, let's just see our way through it and neutralize our exposure so we can have a balance of cyclicality and defensiveness. So I think predicting great big events and so on and so forth is, is largely going to be, lead to failure in the investment industry. Okay. Now, we've been talking loads about US equities, but there's a lot more to the US than that. Um, so how do you feel about US bonds? Well, that's an, it's, it's a very interesting. We've been on a 30-year journey of bond yields coming down and down and down and down. And I take the view, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, that ultimately the world changed 10 years ago with the financial crisis and the whole structure of central banking and bond markets has moved into a new era, that new era being the era of quantitative easing. And the distinction between this era and the era that existed prior to that is central banks in the earlier era, were only able to set short-term interest rates, basically the very, very shortest-term interest rates by lending to, to commercial banks. Now central banks have the ability to buy assets across a huge spectrum of assets. In, in Japan and Europe, they are even involved in the equity market. In the US, they can buy bonds of any duration, and they can buy them in unlimited quantity because only central banks can create money. That is a structurally very, very different environment. And they've been using that new, you could call them superpowers, 
to basically try and achieve financial stability. That is the primary focus of central banks, whereas historically the primary focus of central banks was manipulating inflation lower. That is completely gone off their agenda now. Financial stability is their primary objective. With that in mind, it is not realistic to think that bond yields are going materially higher. Which means whilst, you know, yields are very low and that's an unattractive return relative to, say, equities, it doesn't mean you're going to be faced with huge losses. So so bonds clearly have a role within a portfolio to reduce volatility and so on and so forth. Many people really for seven or eight years have been expecting a big sell-off in bonds. And realistically, if you look at the agenda of central banks, that's fairly unlikely doesn't make them necessarily a good investment, but it does mean that you're not going to see big losses. You're not going to see bond yields at 5 6 7% anytime soon. Okay, so um, what areas of uh, bond market are you invested in and why? Well, we tend to take the view that, you know, we're, we're in the business running a multi-asset fund of, of constructing portfolios as much as understanding investment markets. And, and in terms of portfolio construction, you're going to be looking for good diversification of your equity exposure so assets that may go up when equities have have the weaker periods that they do from time to time in that way you know very long duration bonds have a purpose in that context there's still an upward sloping yield curve and the best negative correlation against equities you'll get from the longer duration bonds at the same time of course there are many many investors in our client base who have a need for ongoing incomes and there we'll be looking for shorter duration but higher yielding corporate bonds, which will generate attractive incomes. And what we've seen there, of course, the big risk with 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 corporate bonds is you get a nasty recession and you get sort of a credit cycle as you used to get through the 70s into the the early 2000s. Now, again, you you tend to take the view at the moment that sort of contagious credit cycles are less likely in a world where central banks are actively trying to avoid that. The era before 2008, actually central banks accepted and in many cases saw it as a matter of policy was to lead to credit cycles in order to drive out inflation. They're trying to do the absolute opposite. So although you do see defaults from individual companies, what you're not seeing is a contagious credit cycle. So the downside risk in corporate bonds is on a stock selection basis, not an asset class basis. And are there any particular geographies, areas, sectors that um, you're interested in? And- well, clearly the, the, the highest yields mm. are available in the US and that mm. remains the case. You know, European bonds really offer no income and very little upside. So when, when, the, when, the, when the government bond yields below zero and credit spreads are incredibly narrow – you know, why would you bother with the asset mm. class? You don't get the diversification benefit. You don't get the income. So you're not, why have you got them? US and the UK still have some, some attractive positive yields by way of sectors. You know, essentially with fixed income and, and corporate bonds, you're clearly what your primary objective is, is to avoid losses avoid, because you, you haven't got the opportunity to make lots of money. So loss avoidance is the absolute key, which means avoid those loser industries, avoid retail, avoid old economy, heavy industrials and so on and so forth, where you're in structural decline, your risk of default is clearly high. So you need to be very successful about individual company, very, very you know, sort of strategic with the sectors and companies you own. But uh, generally, uh, we wouldn't expect, you know, that there is a big sell-off in bonds coming. Okay. I mean, some investors totally avoid bonds um, because of 
some of the risks that you outlined. I mean, why would you argue that um, they shouldn't totally exclude bonds or debt assets from their portfolios? Well, basically, it's a, it's a portfolio construction issue. Individual investors have different levels of tolerance mm. for volatility. And, and you do have to understand that whilst the highest long-term returns are going to be available from equity, they always will. Mm. There are many investors out there who can't tolerate the 10, 15, 20, occasional 30% drawdowns that you're going to get from the asset class. Either their time frame is too short or just their own personal risk tolerance is, is too low for that kind of experience. You know, and investing professionally as we do is as much about managing the journey as anything else. And so bonds have a, a clear role in portfolios, as long as you can find bonds with a positive long-term return out of them, simply to reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio that you're offering to clients. And clients that can't tolerate the 15 20% plus volatility you get from an equity portfolio, balancing that with a bit of bonds and a few other asset classes is clearly the purpose. As long as you're buying bonds with a positive return over time, and we don't see any purpose buying bonds which are going to lose us money. Dave, what areas of the bond market are the managers that uh, you surveyed turning to? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So as David mentioned, um, we're still in this very low rate environment. And that means particularly on sort of more defensive bonds, you've got very low yields, even negative yields in some places. Broadly speaking, um, you're seeing our sample of asset managers turning pretty negative on those um, more defensive um, fixed income instruments. So around 60% are negative on government bonds and equally they're not particularly keen on investment grade bonds. What they are liking is the riskier and high yielding parts of the fixed income universe. Most notably um, emerging market debt is uh, still really popular as it was last year. So around two thirds of our sample are positive on that. So what kind of investors are emerging market bond funds suitable for? It's definitely the uh, those with a stomach for kind of greater risk. The, the yields are more attractive um, and perhaps the fundamentals look decent for emerging market debts uh, if you have the, the, uh, the risk tolerance um, because people still want yield, so they'll still buy into that. Hopefully some conditions should improve for emerging markets more generally, but Again, you are taking a higher risk for that high yield. So you need to be aware of that. Okay. So um, if you can tolerate these risks, for example, because you've got high risk appetite and a mm. long-term investment horizon, I mean, how could you personally get exposure to emerging markets bonds? So I think this is an area where funds tend to excel because they're offering you that more diversified approach. I think it'd be quite rare for someone to go direct. Well, you can't um, really buy bonds directly. No, no. And uh, a fund that we um, quite like is uh, M&G Emerging Markets Bond. Um, that is a fund run by a very experienced team. Um, still has a fairly attractive yield of about 5.5%. The capital returns over time have been very impressive. And and perhaps what's more important is they just have a very flexible approach so they can navigate the kind of challenges that you'll see. One example here is with um, the kind of form of debt that they can invest in. Um, Some funds will only invest in either hard debt, which is um, debt that's denominated in, for example, the US dollar, a more stable currency, Whereas um, soft currency debt or, or local debt is in the, the local currency, so that can be a lot more volatile. But this fund has a, has a mixture of the, uh, the two exposures. 
Okay. Um, David, what do you think about emerging market bonds? Are they worth the risk? I'm I'm pretty much agree. Everything has already been said, actually. You know, at the end of the day, with emerging market bonds, you're pushing out to the riskier end Mm. of the whole bond spectrum is it's it's that you can go a long way beyond there actually in terms of risk within bonds and push the risk right out towards equity type risk so you know we're not talking of equity type risk we're looking at emerging market bonds but essentially there are two types as has already been said if you're buying local currency denominated emerging market bonds where you can get still yields of six seven Mm. if you push it hard eights and nines the principal risk you are taking is currency risk. And emerging market currencies can be very, very volatile. I mean, we can all, you know, I've experienced, I think, four or five Brazilian currencies in my lifetime. And, and Argentina's defaulted more often than that still. So, you know, this is the risk you're taking and it's the currency risk you're taking in those those funds, much more than the capital volatility in local currency. So that, that should be borne in mind how much currency risk can you tolerate in your portfolio that said i broadly agree that one of the remaining relatively attractive asset classes and it has to do to be honest as much with individual fund managers individual constraints many bond managers are only allowed to buy their local currency and locally local credits even when they're say a dollar or sterling bond manager they're not allowed to buy credits outside of their jurisdiction, which means even dollar-issued emerging market bonds can often look relatively cheap for the same level of credit risk as as as, as a US company's dollar-denominated bond. So th- th- therein lies the opportunity if you're prepared to push out to to local currency or dollar emerging market bonds. There still remains an income opportunity there, and therefore potentially the opportunity for some residual capital gain to come through. But really, you should always consider when when you're buying bonds, your expected return is the yield you buy them at. Okay. um, As for the important question is, um, do any of your funds have any emerging market bonds? We do. We, We own both emerging market government bonds in their local currency, and we also own one or two in dollars as well. But 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 there, our exposure is is very much constrained, and it, the constraint is the currency risk we're prepared to tolerate. We don't, as a general rule, like currency risk, and we certainly don't see currencies as a source of return. Okay, um, we've um, talked about equities, talked about bonds. So, um, what other kinds of non-equity assets are you allocated to, and um, what's their purpose in your portfolios? I have to say, most things. Ah, oh, you know, when people talk about alternatives, mm. the reality is that that you know there are really only sort of three sorts of instruments available to an to an investor. You know, there are equities, you know, shares in companies, shares in businesses. There are fixed income assets in all their various guises, which essentially come down to lending. And then there are fixed assets such as property. Most things that are called alternatives, when really looked at carefully, will be one or more of those cut together in a a way to make them look different. That said, amongst those sort of other types of assets, clearly property has a role in most portfolios. Clearly in a world where you think that interest rates are going to remain structurally low, property yields, which, which remain considerably above bond yields, still look quite attractive subject to the individual risks of individual jurisdictions. So so arguably you should look 
globally, we use REITs for the liquidity. Mm -hmm. We've already touched on illiquidity. Many alternatives, another thing I would point out, is many things that are called alternatives are essentially equity or bond-type assets that have been structured in an illiquid way. And, 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 and the risk you're taking is liquidity risk, not, not volatility. And, and that is, is, is essentially a way of marketing something. Look at this. It's very low volatility when actually it's simply because it doesn't trade. So private equity, for example, is just public, it's just equity mm. with lots of leverage that doesn't, where there's no public market for it. I think I'd rather have equity where there is a public market and I can buy and sell it each day. But you can push out to some of the interesting areas of the bond market, you know, leasing structures. Um, you can, you can have a look around things like asset backed securities and things like that. They're really fixed income assets, but they have slightly different risk reward characteristics and still offer some high returns. But most, you know, most, most things that are called alternatives are, are often you know, they, they have one or other characteristics of all the other asset classes. But so but but diversity is the key. Mm. You know, when running a mixed asset fund, you want diversity. You want to be able to diversify your fund as much as possible. Mm. And in terms of um, the alternatives you hold, you mentioned REITs for access to property. I mean, what are the risks, downsides, possible downsides to investments? Well, you know, there are the diversifiable risks, you know, the individual exposures you have within your REIT portfolio, i.e. regions and sectors. You know, we've already touched on on, on on the retail sector several times today, you know, and, and so you want to avoid the sort of exposures that are obviously negative. And the principal risk with with REITs is essentially rent in the long run is ultimately going to be a function of nominal GDP. There's a constrained amount of land available in most economies, and therefore rents tend to track nominal economic growth over long periods of time, and that's going to be valued off the bond yield. So the, the two big... And, of course, people owning property through REITs typically involves the, the REIT structure borrowing money to finance its property. So your risk is essentially the same as most other asset classes. It's interest rates and economic outlook. Okay. Now, you mentioned that um, one of the rules of bonds in your portfolio is to mitigate downside. Um, do you hold any other assets to mitigate, specifically mitigate downside? We, we in, in our funds, we don't mm. use any derivatives whatsoever. We, we, mm. we, we want to off, offer a product to customers that is easily understandable without leverage structured within it. So what we're looking for is downside protection through assets that tend to perform well in negative periods of time. So I've touched on using very long-dated government bonds as, as, as a mitigator against downside protection. The obvious, obvious asset to use in the case of a long-only mixed asset fund is gold. Gold, when things go awfully wrong, either via inflation or political instability or economic downside risk, generally offers a safe haven, can offer positive returns in those, those falling environments. So it's an asset, although our exposure varies over time, that we'll very often hold in portfolios, sometimes in substantial amounts. At the moment, we're sort of at mid-range to upper bound in our exposure to gold, given the interest rate environment, uncertainty about the economy and uncertainty about geopolitical environment. Okay. Thank you, David. A really helpful update on the state of markets and how to position for the current environment. And if you're interested in gold, see next week's big theme in the issue of the 24th of January. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see this week's Investors Chronicle or the website at www 
investorschronicle.co.uk for Dave's full report on how asset managers are positioned and what funds you can use to tap into areas that look like they might have better prospects. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.